Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. As Hagrid had said, what would come would come, and he would have to meet it when it did. I'm the boober tuber who's about to be popped so that Fleur won't have any signs of acne for her witch weekly cover shoot. And I'm Peter Pettigrew's halftime nail technician. And we are the cosmetics team behind Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, end of season, we're going through all of the mail that the owls have sent us over the season, and we have a couple of updates we want to share with everybody. One is that it turns out that you are a busier person now that you are the Pope of Harvard than you were when you were an associate professor and agreed to host this new series of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text with me. And so you can no longer do every single episode with me. And so you will be taking just a slight step back. You are going to start doing every other episode with me. Yeah, I also don't want to understate the significance of assistant head coach of Little League sure. baseball Yeah, for seven to nine-year-olds. That's been a big time commitment on my part. Yeah. But you're right. I'm going to step back a little bit and only join this beloved community for our wonderful conversations every other week going forward. Now, as much as I will miss you, and I will miss you, we have found a really excellent solution. To quote Sound of Music, which is a hint, everyone, God closed a window, <laughs> but a door opened. And through the door flew Casper Turkile. That's right, everyone. 
one out of four episodes is now going to include Casper. So as much as I will miss you, Matt, I am very excited to have the nonsense and brilliance of Casper Turkile more regularly back in my life. And then we're also going to use this opportunity to have more guests. We love having Jolie Doggett and Jackson Bird on the podcast. And so you flying through that window on the back of Norbert, you know, the dragon, means that other people are going to be able to saunter through. And we're really excited for all of the changes, even though I really am going to miss you. I love talking to you every week. I like talking to you, too. I'm going to miss it also. But the good news is you only have to wait a week and I'll be back. That's true. Good. So, Matt, before we recap everything that happens in book four perfectly in 30 seconds, I just am curious what your overall impression is of Goblet of Fire now that we have finished the entire book. I mean, this is the second time I read this book. The first time I read the book, I was distracted by the unreasonableness of the Triwizard Tournament. Like, why is this small group of students from these two schools at this place all year? It just didn't make sense to me. And I think I kind of got over that this time reading. I'm not sure that was actually a smart thing to think last time. But this time it was just really like, why didn't the Hogwarts administration do something different? Yeah. There are so many moments in this book when they have every opportunity to spare Harry from participating in this tournament. And they just don't. The catastrophe that happens at the end of this book seems so avoidable at so many moments. And that was always clear to me that the ministry was at fault for some of that. This time reading the book, it just became clear to me how Hogwarts also just missed a bunch of opportunities to keep everybody safer. Yeah, Matt, I know we did talk about this a lot, but because we did, I'm really curious if we can read this sacredly enough that we can try to come up with a productive reading of this choice, because it does. Hmm. It seems so obvious to me that Harry could stand at the top of the ring where there is a dragon breathing fire and just be really proud and say, I'm 14, so I forfeit. And then when he's standing at the edge of the lake, he can go, you know, again, I'm too young for this, so forfeit (laughs) I do, right? Or like Dumbledore could do it for him. Like it's just so frustrating that I feel called to try to reconcile it. Yeah. And the thing that I want to take from it is just there must be such obvious things in my life that I could do in a simpler way and I don't. And it's just because I like don't step back and pause that I don't see that like actually certain things don't need to be this hard. But I don't know what those things are. So, I mean, that's the nature of them, right? Like, right. we don't know the things that we're missing. I, yeah, the corollary to this is that, like, Wormtail and Voldemort's plan is such a long shot Hail Mary. There are so many opportunities for it to go wrong, and it only goes right because no one's paying the right amount of attention. And so, again, like, for me, I think that is the sacred kind of lesson, which is like, oh, boy, human beings are prone to pay attention to the wrong things or not to pay attention to the things that are right in front of them. And that can lead to some pretty disastrous consequences. And so the thing I hope we can explore in this episode is like, how do we pay attention? Like, how does this, does this book give us clues for where and how to pay better attention? Having shown us how prone we are to missing things, what signals does it give us to pay attention to the right things? Yeah, Matt, I just had a moment that feels 
close to what we're talking about, which is, you know, Peter and I obviously would love to see my stepchildren, Peter's kids, like as often as we can and be as big of a part of their lives as we can. And it didn't recently occur to us that we could just move closer to them, but it recently became possible for us to move closer to them. And what is interesting about it and what I want to add to complicating this about Harry is that I'm like, this is a no brainer. We can finally afford to live closer to the children. And at the first opportunity for us to do it, we're doing it. And it is going to be life changing for us and for the kids to be able to see them every single day. This is very exciting. And yet, I do have mixed feelings about it, right? Like, I'm moving to the suburbs. I'm moving further from my friends. I'm moving to a place where public transportation is going to become nearly impossible for me. Like, and I think that that is possibly one of the things that we are forgetting about when we talk a little bit glibly about how Harry should just stand there and be like, I forfeit, right? Like it would be embarrassing. There would be a cost to it. Draco would mock him, right? Like, and I do think that sometimes we can be paying attention, but also just put the weight on the wrong thing, right? Like, again, we weren't not moving because I like living close to my friends, right? Like it, again, is like very clear that, I'm in a phase of my life and the kids are in a phase of their lives where that is priority number one. But, you know, I can understand why when you have conflicting priorities of like, I don't want to be embarrassed in front of Draco. There's all this pressure on me to be the chosen one. Also, I, I value my life, right? Like you can sometimes forget which the higher priority is. And that's also why I think it's falls on the administration, not on Harry. Right. Right. Like they're the ones who are not paying attention and who need to bear the cost of that ambivalence or maybe some of the costs of like breaking the rules or whatever it's going to, whatever cost there would be to disqualifying Harry in some procedural way. And I think actually Harry might be the clue that we're given. I think Harry's response to things, what Harry pays attention to, those might be the places in the book where we might get some signs for how to pay better attention. Well, Matt, I'm so glad we get to talk about this and suss it out more. But first, let's remind people everything that happens in book four. This is such a long book. I, like like the book one is, what, 18 chapters or something? This mm-hmm. is, it's so much. But in many ways, I find it comforting because there is there is no option but failure. <laughs> it's 37 chapters, so you can't even do a second a chapter. Okay, Matt, I'm not going to ask if you're ready because I have learned. I'm not ready. On your mark, get set, go. So the old guy dies and it's very scary. And then Harry goes to the Weasleys and there's a big tournament. And then the dark mark comes and then they go to school. And there's a there's people come in from other schools. And there's a Triwizard tournament. And the first task is a dragon. And then uh, the second task has to do with the, the egg that screams and um, he goes to the to the bathroom. And then uh and he dives in the water and then the and then the Yule ball and then uh rounds a jerk and the bed the last task is the maze and Cedric and they, he tie and then the Voldemort's back and it's a disaster. Boy, it got, it got fast at the end. Whew. <laughs> Whew. Wow. Einstein is rolling in his grave on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it got fast He's, at the end. Einstein is going, k- kind no, kind of. No. Uh, time is relative. <laughs> okay. Vanessa, are you ready? Nope. I'd love to count you in. Okay. Three. Two, one, go. 
So Hermione is like, sure, I'll go to the Quidditch World Cup. It's like interesting from an anthropological point of view. And then she meets Winky and she's like, oh, my God, house elves are everywhere. And this is really terrible. And um, there's a big thing. And she gets scared about about dark magic being back. And then she meets Victor Crumb. And she's like, it's really flattering that you like me. But also, I really like Ron. And Victor asks her to the Quidditch, to the Yule Ball. And she's like, sure. And then she's like, oh, my God, I figured it out. Rita Skeeter is a beetle. And then she locks Rita Skeeter in a jar. That was excellent. No, it wasn't, but thank you. I like the strategy. You've done this in past episodes, but I forgot, of like just kind of honing in on a single character. I think every time it's been Hermione and just recounting her experience. Yes, she's the only one who matters. So Matt, while we all agree that Hermione is the most important character, we always take the opportunity in our wrap-up episodes to pay attention to what we think Harry's arc was in book four. And... In book three, what we talked about is that Harry is really finding a sense of family, that through Sirius reemerging into his life, he understands that he has family other than the Dursleys. But I'm wondering what you think Harry's arc is in book four. Yeah, Vanessa, I think one of the things about Harry that's really developing in this book is like a larger sense of obligation or a sense of community or something. I think that what you said about the last book where Harry was developing his sense of family, developing like who counted his family for him, what that meant for him, that's all true. But in this book, his sense of obligation and connection extends even further outward, right? The book begins with Frank Bryce being killed. We know that Bertha Jorkins has been killed. And at the last kind of climactic moment, the people who come out of Voldemort's wand to speak to him and to rally to his defense and to support him are not just his dead family members, whom he's always felt obligated towards and connected with. It's also Frank Bryce and Bertha Jorkins, who he's never met before, and Cedric Diggory, who's like his rival in many ways at the school, like this sense of like, oh, this threat is not just to me and not just to the people I immediately care about. This threat is actually to others who I care about, right? And who who I also want to defend from this evil. And like that sense of expanding responsibility, expanding obligation, even sense of expanding solidarity to people he's never met, even muggles he's never met. That's new in this book. And it's something that's going to continue and grow, obviously, as the threats become more fully realized and more clear and present in the lives of him and, and those who are close to him. I love that point, Matt. I spent a small part of my career helping build a curriculum for a sort of atheist humanist Sunday school, right? Like a sort of moral and ethical education for young kids. And we did something we called a bullseye curriculum, which is teaching kids over the course of a year and that we were going to do the same thing year after year, just with different ways of thinking about it, what it means to care for yourself, then spanning out what it means to care for your family, then spanning out what it means to care for your community, and then what it means to be a caring person in the world. And what are our responsibilities? And sort of, you know, there are studies that show that we all have the ability to sort of care about 300 people, and that's where our brains naturally max out. And so what does it mean to try to expand past that, to care about future generations when we use water, right? Just thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people. And I I love that Harry is going through that expansion of community and that you're pointing us to that, that he's not just like, well, I like Ron and Hermione, so obviously I'm going to help them. I like Molly, so obviously I'm going to help her, right? And, you know, he even says in the maze, he helps Crumb 
But one of the things he said is, this is surprising. I thought he was all right, right? Like, I thought Crumb was a guy I liked. So, of course, you yeah. know, I was going to help Crumb. But we really see him just helping strangers because it is the right thing to do, um, which is the goal that, you know, all of us should have is doing the right thing, even if we can't quite imagine the person that it's the right thing for. Yeah, and I think it is something he grows into throughout the book. I mean, this is just a thought experiment, and I might be wrong, but imagine if his initial dream, what he thinks is a dream, but which is actually a vision, is not of Frank Bryce dying, but of Arthur Weasley being killed. Mm-hmm. Or of, you know, Ron or Cho or something. Right? Maybe he tells Sirius, or maybe he tells Dumbledore, because it's so acute and so close, but because it's a person he doesn't really know. And I'm not trying to fault this 14-year-old for mm-hmm. not reacting to that dream, especially when so much of this is troubled and so much of it's confusing and underexplained to him. But I do think that one of the things that develops through the course of the book and the fact that Frank comes out of the wand and speaks to Harry, like the sense of obligation does expand for him over the course of these 37 chapters so that he's in a different place when he starts book five. What arc did you see for Harry in this book? The arc that I see for Harry in this book is increased skepticism and sort of more pixelated skepticism, right? He finds reasons to be skeptical of almost everyone in this book. I would argue except Dobby and Hermione, who don't really get complicated in terms of their agendas with Harry or his perception of their agendas with him. But, you know, he watches Molly be wrong about Hermione. He watches Molly yell at the twins and then apologize to the twins. He watches Ludo Bagman, this guy who's like really affable and seems sweet steal from children and try to use him. And the big one to me is he completely trusts Mad-Eye Moody simply because Dumbledore trusts Mad-Eye Moody. Or not simply, right? Arthur also really speaks highly of Mad-Eye Moody and his loyalty to sort of the right causes. And it just reminds me of sort of Elizabeth Holmes, where everybody got on the board of Theranos because other people were on the board of Theranos. She like convinced Henry Kissinger to get on her board. And then the next person was like, Henry Kissinger is on the board. Well, okay. And Harry is learning in this that people that you respect a lot and care about a lot and value a lot can be wrong sometimes. And so just because Dumbledore thinks Mad-Eye Moody is completely trustworthy doesn't mean that that is Mad-Eye Moody. And there's the moment at the end of the book where You know, people are trying to pull Harry in a million different directions, and Dumbledore is like, no, Harry, stay next to me. But the one person who Harry feels comfortable going with is Mad-Eye Moody, is this, like, emissary of Dumbledore who has been, you know, christened as the one person who Harry can always trust. And Harry can't. And I've actually talked myself into he can't even really trust Dobby and Hermione, right? Because Dobby inadvertently is acting on Barty Crouch Jr.'s orders, right? You know, Dobby gives Harry gillyweed, but only because Barty Crouch Jr. gives Dobby the gillyweed because Barty Crouch Jr. wants Harry to do well. And, you know, you can't trust anything. And it's such a sad thing for a 14-year-old to have to learn. But, you know, we will see the sort of logical conclusion of this in book seven, where he has to make a decision. 
you know, Horcruxes versus Hallows, and that he has to take responsibility for his decisions. And yeah, he's just like really starting on that path to a version of adulthood that means at the end of the day, the buck is going to stop with him because he can't really rely on anybody else. I think there might be something in your sense of Harry's arc when combined with my sense of Harry's arc that might give us an answer to our concern about like how you pay attention, the thing we raised before the 30-second recap. Because I think what we're lamenting is like this idea that we can't know all things. We can't know everything about everything. We don't know what we're not paying attention to. We don't know what people know or whether they're wrong. And that's that's a bind. And so we're always going to have to make decisions maybe unsure that we don't have all the right information or that people who we're depending upon don't have the right information. But I think the answer to it, or at least the beginning of an answer, is about listening to others, right? Like we might not from our vantage point be able to see clearly what the threat coming over the horizon is, but we can listen to others who might see it, right? We can listen to others who might see it more clearly than us. And that doesn't mean that everyone's right, but just this willingness to pay attention, to let others speak, to let their opinions be heard, right? Like, this is, I think, the gift that Harry has, and I think it's the gift that will serve him and the children well going forward. He pays attention to house elves and what they have to say about things in ways that others don't. He pays attention to Hagrid, right? <laughs> he pays attention to others who have a perspective on the situation that others maybe sideline or ignore. Um, I think here he's learning to pay attention to his own dreams better, right? And to pay attention to people like Frank Price and Bertha Jorkins, who they should have paid attention to throughout the whole book. I also think that's dangerous. It carries its own risks because, you know, Rita Skeeter also says that she sees threats coming around the corner and she's wrong, right? So like <laughs> listening to more people and gathering more information and evidence doesn't mean that everyone's going to tell you the right thing. But if you actually listen to folks, especially folks who are under threat, who have reason to to understand where threats are coming from that you might not see, like listening to those folks can help you pay attention, can can help you see what's coming down the line, or at least can help you make like decisions even when you don't have all the information. It can help you make better decisions when you have to make one. I think that's right, Matt. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. 
I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. The only other thing that I want to call attention to as part of Harry's arc is that we're seeing some romantic feelings for Harry, and that is going to now be with us for the rest of the books. In this book, he has a little crush on Cho Chang, and he gets jealous, and he's watching Hermione admit her feelings for Ron, and he is watching Ron be a total dodo brain about his feelings for Hermione. And, you know, all of this drama is going to continue to be a part of his life throughout the rest of the series. And so it's, it is fun to watch the sparkings of that here. Yeah, it's really fun to see the romance begin in this book. So, Matt, something that we always like to do, of course, is take the long view, not just of this book, but of the series in terms of where we are. Is there something in particular other than with Harry that you would like to take the long view of? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I'm just really interested in Weasley family dynamics, right? I mean, Percy has always been a little bit of an irritant in the family. Like he's, he's also a kid before this book. But now he's a professional, and the beginnings of the estrangement that will happen to their family, this really painful estrangement, you can see the seeds of it in this book where Percy's loyalty is so much to the ministry, so much to Mr. Crouch. Yeah, and that's just something I want to pay attention to. I think the first time I read through the series, I was paying a lot more attention to Harry, and I'm still doing that now. But I feel like if I was going to write fan fiction about Harry Potter, it would be from within the Weasley family, right? Like this saga of like this family that's broken up and experiences tragedy, but also has all this closeness. It's such a good family story. And also, you know, has this relationship with these other children who become their chosen family, the way Hermione and Harry do. Like, it's such an amazing story. And like up until now, the family, even though, you know, they don't have a lot of money or whatever, it's presented as this kind of idyllic family situation. Every time Harry goes, the siblings are having fairly low stakes conflict, the kind of family rivalry that makes you still feel included. And, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley are always so kind and loving, and the home is this kind of place of commotion and energy and love. And starting kind of at the end of this book and then book five, some really deep 
estrangements and pain start to arise, and that's what I want to track. Pay closer attention to how people behave, how people react, what they're doing, and how they're navigating this really painful series of kind of family events and tragedies, in addition to the sort of larger, broad-scale political events and tragedies that are, that are coming for them and for their world. How about you, Vanessa? What's your long view? <laughs> My long view is of this last sort of clause that you said is of the political impacts of the ministry on the lives of, you know, individual citizens. You know, Fudge and Dumbledore break at the end of this book. They have different goals going forward. And you know, Fudge isn't pro-Voldemort, but he is unwilling to take a stand. And that lack of stand is a kind of stand. And we are going to see the direct impacts of that in the lives of the Wizarding World immediately in Book 5 with a Dementor being sent to Little Winging and then Umbridge being put at Hogwarts, right? Fudge at the end of this book sort of threatens Dumbledore with that. He says, I would like to remind you that you've been able to do whatever you want at Hogwarts with very little ministry interference you know, directly implying that that is no longer going to be the case. And in a time in which our government has its fingers in our schools in a lot of really harmful ways in the United States, it seems very apt to me that we are going to start to see those same types of interventions going on at Hogwarts. And it's just, you know, it's going to be really disappointing, the role that the ministry plays, the violence that they allow, the violence that they actually encourage And that the ministry is no longer going to be a place where, you know, people are doing their best in a complicated world, but people are actually actively making malicious compromises in order to hold on to their own power and are willing to hurt a lot of people along the way. Another thing I kind of want to track, and I think I mentioned this in a previous rap episode, is I just wonder about like what this series of novels, what its theory of transformative changes, <laughs> right? Like there's this great man theory, which is like, oh, heroes arise and the heroes are the ones who change the world. And I don't think that's what this book says exclusively because, you know, what saves the world at the end of the series is partnership across all kinds of people, right? And so I, it's more complicated than that. But the thing that does worry me about the series of books is how deeply, deeply skeptical they seem to be of a free press and of government work, <laughs> right? Like bureaucracies can't help but fail, the books seem to say, and the press can't help but pay attention to the wrong thing. And I know that these are flaws of bureaucracy and the press, right? But my own position is that those are better risks than the alternative. Totally. Which is trusting great men to, to save us, quote unquote, great men, right? And that actually we need the press and we need collective government in order to as far as we can, as much as we can, represent as many perspectives to pay attention to folks who aren't being paid attention to. The books, and especially this particular book, can't be responsible for addressing all of that nuance, when right now I think what's at stake is it's trying to make somebody like Rita Skeeter suspect, start to plant some seeds of doubt about the ministry. But I do want to pay closer attention in book five to the places where the books might also suggest that these aren't fundamental and absolute flaws of these public institutions, but just necessary risks within fallible institutions that are still worth undertaking because of the advantages they also bring. It is also really interesting now knowing more about J.K. Rowling's political positions in the world and her profound skepticism of the press, that the press is represented in this way. Yeah. As her more reactionary positions have emerged, it made me wonder, like, Oh, is, this is 
this might be in the novels too. And right. I think maybe we're starting to see where it's in the novels. Now, as we always do, I think that there are resistances to those things within the novels also, right? The novels push back against themselves in interesting ways. And that's, that's one of the things I want to watch. Like where are the places where, where we see alternatives to the fairly flat representations of these institutions that the books give us? Yeah. And, you know, I do think that the book gives us hints of it, right? We have Amelia Bones on the Wizagamot, who is going to stand up for Harry and ask the right questions. We have Lee Jordan and the Weasley twins who are going to, you know, be making a radio show trying to spread correct information in an age of misinformation. But absolutely, these are the good people working within these industries of government and media, you know, free press and and governmental support are absolutely the, the exception. And these books have a tremendous amount of skepticism about these institutions that like you and I hold near and dear and would like to yeah. make the best versions of themselves. And we don't think that they are perfect, but as you said, much better than the alternative. Yeah. And those are great examples, right? Ones I wasn't thinking of that are really useful to bring up. And also, I don't want us to sound naive. I think that the press can get hijacked in meaningful ways. And I think that the government can't, like, we we see this, like, we see major media organizations who do of course. promulgate misinformation and governments that fail spectacularly and do the kinds of things that the novels warn us about. Yeah, I just want to track, as we've been saying, track where are the moments where we see alternatives and we see resistance in the, in the books. Yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's N-O-T-S-O-R-R-Y-W-O-R-K-S dot com. Well, Matt, every wrap-up episode, we like to do sort of a sparklet of sparklets, Florilegia, where we pick a sentence that sparkles up at us as we finished the book, that we look back and we're like, oh my gosh, this sentence isn't necessarily indicative of the, you know, central message of the whole novel, but is still really sticking with us even after we have completed it. And so I am wondering... What sentence, as we've wrapped up book four, still sparkles up at you? So I'm going to pull a fairly well-known, I think, 
quote from the book, Great. but I, I want to do it with a little bit of ambivalence and some caveats. Yeah. So towards the end of the book, Dumbledore is trying to get the full story out of Harry after Harry has been returned from the graveyard and has brought Cedric's body back. And Dumbledore says to Harry, numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it. And he's making it the case that Harry should tell the whole story now because that would be better than than burying it. And I, you know, I, as we talked about when we talked about it in the episode, I think this is bad pastoral and psychological advice. I think that the right time to talk is when one feels safe to talk. And that's not what's going on here, especially because we see Dumbledore later on, like saying, no one is allowed to ask Harry anything about anything because it's better that he not say anything, right? I, so the context in which this is said is not what I want to lift up. I actually want to think about sort of the moment with which this book begins, which is the murder of Frank Bryce mm-hmm. and what we learn to be also the murder of Bertha Jorkins. Mm-hmm. Like there has been something alarming that people have known about for the whole book or the dark mark even going up at the Quidditch World Cup. Something has been wrong since the beginning of this book and most people in the book do their best through much of the book to not pay attention to it rather than to just face it and ask the hard question, the the question which might have a very painful answer and to to start responding to it. And so I want to lift up this statement, numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it, lift it out of its context and then apply it to, mm-hmm. you know, the first few scenes of the novel. Vanessa, what's your sparklet of sparklets? Yeah, Matt, I love that, right? Like there are contexts in which this is true, that like you just have to look at the thing and numbing the pain isn't going to help and that, you know, you have to engage in fast action. But there are also times where it's like, do you know what? You can sleep first and deal with this in the morning. This problem is going to sit and you can just do what you've got to do to take care of yourself first, that there's nothing wrong with that. So I love thinking about that contextually. So my sentence is from the chapter, The Dark Mark, and it is right after the Quidditch World Cup has wrapped up and everybody is sort of camping and celebrating and it's supposed to be this joyful night. And this kind of hate crime happens, which is the torturing of these muggles who are, you know, sort of a family that runs the campgrounds. And the sentence that I picked is... It looked as though they were scared to perform any spell that might make the Roberts family fall. And the reason that I like this sentence is because I feel like this is something we all struggle with all the time. Is my intervention going to make this worse? In which case, should I just sit here? Or is this actually a moment where I absolutely need to intervene? And what makes this complicated is, and I know this is something that you talk about a lot, I'm very confused about magical healing. Like, my understanding is that magic is really good at healing broken bones, so why not have the Roberts family fall and then heal them rather than prolong this torture? But maybe magical healing doesn't work on muggles, right? Like, we don't know the magic of this. But it also speaks to this feeling that we've been talking about, which is like, what are our priorities here? Are our priorities to like figure out what's going on? Is it to just stop the suffering as quickly as possible and deal with the repercussions of that later? And, you know, it feels as though the narrator here, it looks like they're scared, but why, right? Like there's a little bit of skepticism about why the authority figures are making the choices that they are. 
it is the most vulnerable people in this space who are being attacked, right? There is no one more vulnerable at the Quidditch World Cup than the only muggles there. And yet people do not know what to do to protect them. Yeah. Or enough things haven't been done to protect them. Like they should not be in this situation. Yeah, this perspective just reminds me of like a conversation we had in one of the previous books about Filch, right? Because they expect Filch to clean everything up and they just kind of assume that he has magical capacity to clean things. And so he has none of the tools that a person without magical capacity would need to clean things. And so cleaning things is almost impossible for him. And no wonder he's angry all the time, right? Like just this inability to imagine that other people's experience of the world is so fundamentally different that you need to listen to them and pay attention <laughs> to them first to find out what they need. That's what makes these interventions so complicated and potentially harmful because the needs of the other aren't anticipated really at all, aren't even imagined. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I love you bringing up Filch in this context. So Matt, we now are going to read the two sentences together as if they are their own text. Numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it. It looked as though they were scared to perform any spell that might make the Roberts family fall. I mean, that sounds like your example of letting them break their bones. Right. right? <laughs> like, we're going to not, we're going to keep them up in the air because I'm, we're assuming that that's a better experience for them and they don't have to break their bones rather than just doing the thing and then fixing it. Although I'm not sure I endorse that strategy. I don't know that I either. endorse it either. I'm just always confused <laughs> by the calculus of like when we yeah. allow magical people to get hurt. Yeah. It reads to me like it's the internal monologue of a person trying to decide what to do with the Roberts family. Like they're like, oh, numbing the pain for a while is going to make it worse when they finally feel it, you know, and so they're looking scared to perform that spell. But that gets to something that I we talked about at the beginning of the book with obliviation, right? We know that the Roberts family, if they fall gently, will get their memories obliviated. But you and I have a curiosity about if trauma gets sort of written on you in a biological, physical level, even if your active memory is obliviated, like, does this impact you anyway? And we definitely see the Roberts is very confused. And Mr. Weasley says to us, oh, you know, they're confused for a few days, but they get better. And I was like, well, how disorienting is the memory of being confused for a few days, right? That obliviation is not the same as like time travel and going back and making it as though it didn't happen. And so, yeah, just the moments that we're like, no, nah, they're going to be fine. Like, we don't know. We don't know if they're going to yeah. be fine. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, there are all kinds of examples of people who do not remember traumatic events, but those traumas shape their behaviors in fundamental ways, right? And right. so, like, why would this be different in this situation? I, yeah, I think that's right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, even just literally, right? Casper... You know, told a story on the podcast a long time ago about him falling off of a dock and breaking his back and both of his legs. And he remembers none of it, right? But like physically, he has scars and, you know, metal plates and, right? Like his, his body is yeah. impacted for the rest of his life. So we cannot remember things and they still severely impact us. Yeah. So, Matt, we will now inverse the two sentences and see what new meaning emerges. It looked as though they were scared to perform any spell that might make the Roberts family fall. Numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it. The change in tense struck me differently. I didn't notice a change in tense in the first time you read it. It was more clear here. 
something that was different in reading your sentence first was that the word scared shows up earlier. And so scared fear becomes a context for the reading of numbing pain and when it will be worse and all that stuff. And so like the relationship between fear and pain is something that emerges for me. Like we're afraid of pain, right? Pain's scary. We don't want pain. And so like we make decisions about what will be less painful. Will it be painful now? Will it be painful later? Which is what is going on in that second sentence. But the emergence of the word scared earlier when they're put together just kind of puts it into sharper relief, helps us see that fear is at play in the sentence. At least it does for me. Yeah. And the fear of pain can sometimes cause pain. I'm just thinking about yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, my arms used to hurt after I went to the dentist. And I always thought it was weird. And I would complain to my mom. And she was like, that is not a thing. And I was like, no, my hands always hurt after we go to the dentist. And then it was just a few years ago where a dentist made a joke that like squeezing the arms of the chair isn't going to make it easier. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, my whole life. I've been like oh, holding on to the arms of the dentist chair for like the whole hour of a dentist appointment. And that is why my arms are sore. And my mom was wrong. Going to the dentist can hurt your hands. Right, like fear of pain can actually cause pain, right? Yeah. Fear and stress. Yeah. And like we know this, like fear and stress really impact the body, which gets back to this thing about noticing, right? That I'm just going to, you know, go off of your observation, which is it's not about numbing my hands, right? It's about like trying to, you know, calm down anyway. It's trying to, you know, stay present and notice that, oh, my hands are gripping, you know, the armrest and like that is not going to help. And so letting go anyway. And there's situations that are so stressful that you can't do that, right? Like the Robertses can't just be like, do you know what I need to do right now? Be less stressed and everything will yeah. be fine. <laughs> but there are moments where our fear is what is causing our pain. And hopefully we can let go of that sometimes. Matt, thanks so much for this lovely Florilegia. Thank you, Vanessa. Now is the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Pauline, 96, a matriarch, lover of dogs and horses, and a world traveler. Marie, six days a little sister who was beautiful and beloved. Darren Levy, 40, the fun uncle with a wicked laugh. Pam Hammers, 63, a sensei, warrior, healer, and friend. Tim Moriarty, 82 and a half, a loving, generous, and stubborn grandpa. Greg Forbus, 55. A father and husband who was intentional, loving, and kind. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, who are you blessing at the end of book four? 
I am going to bless Winky. We see Winky withstand so much in this novel. She hates being in the top box because she is afraid of heights, but she's forced to at the Quidditch World Cup. She gets fired for a crime that she did not commit. She gets separated from her family. And then at the end of this book, Dumbledore puts in her position to bear witness to a profound betrayal and loss. And it's a tremendous amount to go through. And I want to bless Winky for being someone who is in the middle of what feels like a relentless amount of bad things. I feel like we've all been in those positions where we're like, are you kidding? Another thing? And Winky seems to be embodying that in this novel. And so I want to offer a blessing for her and anyone who recognizes that feeling and particularly anyone who is in the middle of that feeling right now. What about you, Matt? Who do you want to bless at the end of book four here? I want to bless Bertha Jorkins just one more time. To me, that she's like the central character to this book. Her story, if it's paid attention to early on, foils this whole plan. If people care that Bertha Jorkins is lost, if they care that they don't know where she is, if anybody just cares about this woman who's a member of the ministry, if anybody just pays a little bit more attention, this whole thing can be unspooled and prevented. And that's not a reason to do it. The reason to do it is because she's a person who deserves to have someone remember her and care that she's missing. It just happens that if anyone had done that, this whole thing could have been avoided. So I just want to bless Bertha again. Amen. So Matt, this is usually where we wrap up for the season, but there has been an ongoing question that we've had throughout this book and that we talked about a lot today about how to know what the right decision is and when to make a decision, even if you don't have all of the information. And so we're going to do one more episode this season. We're going to talk about intellectual humility in book four. And then we're going to take two weeks off and we will be back with book five with a lot of Matt in your life, but more Casper Trick Kyle, Jackson Bird, and Julie Doggett. And if in those two weeks you're like, ugh, I miss podcasts, you can make your own. And you can learn about it in our new podcasting class with the fantastic Ariana Martinez. So go to notsorryworks.com and learn more about that. I make a podcast that I can listen to. I give and I give and I give. You make something for me. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. Today we were produced by Ariana Nettleman Woo! in a triumphant return. And we are edited by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by 8Cast. Thanks this week to Laura Glass, to Ariana Nettleman, to Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Jekyll, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of those you have loved and lost this week. I feel like we should have like an illustration of me like trying to crawl through a window while <laughs> while Casper saunters through the door. I feel like that would be a great image to accompany this announcement.